is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Hello. Good afternoon, Michelle Stanley with you across the Territory. Again today, just a short show on analogue for you in Darwin listening on the wireless. I'll be with you until one o'clock. But for the rest of you in the Territory and if you're streaming online, on your telly, on the ABC Listen app. I'll be with you until half past one today, so do stick around. It'll be a good one. You're going to head out hunting for croc eggs today. When you're down on the ground covered in mud trying to get eggs and there's crocs coming out at you, it's always a fun way to start your day and we don't drink much coffee around here. (laughs) Yeah, it was certainly a new experience for me as well, but it has been a really good start to the season this year. You'll find out why shortly. On the other hand, though, not such a great season for mango producers. Prices have come back probably $10 a box in the last week, basically. Yeah, so it's been a fairly quick move so to speak it's terrible i mean there's a lot of very passionate growers out there put a lot of effort into growing good quality fruit yeah plenty of cheap fruit on the market for your chrissy table which is good news for some but a huge drop in prices obviously not great news for growers You'll hear more about that before one o'clock. And if you'd like to get in touch today, 0487 991057 is the text line. It would be great to hear from you. First up today, though, the Northern Land Council has announced its new position on access to Aboriginal waters. This comes 14 years after the High Court confirmed traditional owners have exclusive access rights to intertidal waters over Aboriginal land. Jano Gibson has been following this story. What do these arrangements mean for recreational fishers, Jano? It has been a very long-running saga and what recreational fishers have been looking for is certainty around access to some of the popular fishing areas across the top end. And over the past two years, an agreement has been in place between the Northern Land Council and the Northern Territory Government, which provided um, for permits uh, that fishers could apply for and get very easily, and then they could go to uh, areas in some of the remote parts of the Northern Territory. Now, what the Northern Land Council has said uh, late yesterday is that there will be a new permit regime that comes into force from the 1st of January. And so it means that recreational fish Fishers will have to, again, apply for permits to access some of those remote areas. Uh, Now, at this stage, as we understand it, those permits will initially be free. The Northern Land Council hasn't yet said when a cost might uh, kick in or indeed how much that cost will be. But what we also know is that... uh, there won't be permits required for places like Darwin Harbour and Bino Harbour and that there are also some long-term access agreements and arrangements in place in some of the other popular areas, including uh, the Daly River, Nullanboy, Port Keats and the MacArthur River regions. And so that's because there are those long-term arrangements in place. You won't need a permit there. But what we found out yesterday is that um, there are still a couple of popular areas that fish won't be still won't be able to go to, and those are the Finnis River, or indeed, in fact, parts of the Finnis River, and also the mini mini areas. And um, negotiations are still taking place over those areas. We did have a chat briefly to the uh, CEO of the Amateur Fishermen's Association, David Giravolo, and this is what he had to say. 
So two of the most popular areas for recreational fish, fishes, the Finnis and the Mini Mini areas will remain closed uh, and there'll be negotiations between the government. So we certainly hope they crack on with those negotiations with the NLC. I think in the more remote areas where people will need to apply for a permit, it will certainly be an adjustment, but it does offer uh, some good uh, certainty so people know now that they will need a permit come January 1. So that's AFANT CEO David Chiravolo there. Now, um, we I've also had a chat to the um, the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs in the Northern Territory. That's Selena Yubo. And, of course, the government has been in ongoing negotiations with the Northern Land Council uh, for many years now, coming up with various agreements. Uh, and I asked her specifically about some of those concerns raised by AFANT regarding some of those popular fishing areas uh, in the Finnis and Mini Mini areas. And this is a little bit of what she had to say. I know that there's been a lot of interest in the Finnis River and the Mini Mini area uh, in particular. And at the moment, the traditional owners for those areas have said no to access, which will provide, um, unfortunately, uh, we can't give a time frame, but it'll provide um, more time to be able to see what it is that the traditional owners uh, would like to see if they were to grant access. So that's the ongoing negotiations between the NT government and the Northern Land Council on behalf of those traditional owners. What the Land Council has um, agreed to is allowing uh, NT government officials through some of those negotiations um, to be able to support the process, which hasn't happened before. So it shows a, a bit of a change in the, um, uh, in the, in the partnership, which is a, a really good step forward. That is Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, Selena Yubo, speaking about the Northern Land Council's new rules, really, around uh, access to uh, waters for fishing and recreational fishes in particular. You're hearing from Jano Gibson from ABC News. Jano, is there any change to what had previously been discussed for commercial fishes? Not really. There will be a requirement that commercial fishes have to have in place uh, something known as the, a Section 19 agreement, uh, which is uh, something that falls under the Aboriginal Land Rights Act, but that was something that was known leading into this period. Uh, And so when the Northern Land Council released its uh, press release late yesterday, they did say that they did have a strong, good, positive working relationship with the commercial seafood sector and also some of those tourism operators that head out into the remote waterways. Uh, And so effectively what it'll mean is that so long as these operators have these Section 19 agreements in place from January 1, they will be able to continue to access those areas. And just looping back to the recreational fishers, the Northern Land Council says that um, they haven't yet released an updated map of which areas the permits will apply to, but they say that will be done before the end of this year and then they say it'll be an easy process online to be able to get those permits but one thing we are hearing uh, is that rather than being those permits being in place once you get them for let's say a year or two years it sounds at this stage like they will last for a limited period of time possibly around two weeks. Jana Gibson thanks for your time today. You're welcome. Hello, my name is Salaudi Botongoleoi and I am from Crocodile Island Rangers, one of the women coordinators. And you are listening to the Country Hour. Let's talk crocs now because some late November rainfall in the top end is expected to make for a good season for crocodile eggs this year. Darwin's Crocodilus Park has begun collecting So I hit the road and caught up with General Manager Emily Moyes to find out how it's done. 
probably see that's mama just there she's just popped up in front of the sawgrass there um, she knows that we're coming around and she wants to protect her nest so we're just cruising around our river at the moment every year we collect nests from here depends on the rain how many nests we have for the year you might have maybe 12 to 16 nests um, so what we're doing is kind of trying to look for signs um, where a female may be nesting so it might be that mum is out on the bank or she's on the river and she's usually quite fixated um, on staring where her nest is because she's being a great mum and being quite protective or it might be other signs where we can see grass is being pushed over um, vegetation has been clumped together you can always tell where a female is generally getting ready or whether it does actually usually have eggs in the nest because when they have made the nest and they have laid the eggs they put a lot of work into it so they use their tail they use their claws they mix up all the grass or the dirt or the vegetation the mud um, and it's, it's really intricate they make you know a fantastic nest um, it can it can range in size it can be up to two meters wide but sometimes you might only have a tiny nest that is you know might be only 30 centimeters wide and that also depends on the female's experience as well she could be a new mum she's learning how to make a nest she's learning her territory and trying to find an area for herself and her hatchlings um, or it could be a really experienced female so how has it been this year at the start of December is it normal to be out looking for nests at this time of year yeah it is so with the wet season um, comes nests it's our favorite time of year depending on the rain really depends on when our nests start and how many so because we have had um, a good block of rain in the last two weeks we have had a very strong start to the season we've collected about six nests so far in the park um, whereas generally you might find with the first few big rains we'll have one or two nests and then we'll have a bit of a break um, but because we have had that consistent rain um, the females they just they know their biological clock goes okay it's time to lay your eggs um, they know that the weather's cooling down it's not going to be hot so we have had yeah, a really good start to the season oh there you go there's a nest just there that we've just spotted the nest that we've just spotted that's the sort of mound of dirt it just looks a bit scrappy it doesn't really look like it I mean it's certainly not a bird's nest or anything that's really obvious you've got to have a good eye don't say that too loud they might get a bit upset you said that about their little hatchling home um, but yes look it's it's you know whatever is kind of around um, it's not like a, a bird that you know you bow birds that decorate their nests and make it all pretty um, you know they are apex predators that have been around a long time and they they know what they need to do to survive and and that's make a, a decent nest and yeah it, it can look a bit scrappy sometimes <laughs> how many eggs do you sometimes find in the nests what's typical um, so it does depend again on the female and her experience um, her maturity as well as environmental factors but I mean your average nest you might have about 40 eggs I think our largest nest last year that we had had 78 eggs yes that I mean that's a massive nest and you can see big ones up to you know that 80 mark um, and you can see some as little as you know 10 to 20 but generally speaking you know your average is around that 40 mark have we found another one off to the left oh, of us here? Just looking at this female, is it? it looks like there's another mound up there as well. So you can see here this female here. See how she's looking up at the bank? Yeah. And she's just turning her head as we come along and I can see her nest just under that tree. See a mound oh, there? Yeah. So that's a good indicator. She's sitting at that bank looking after her nest, making sure there's no predators. So what do you do now that you've seen that? Well, we get to do the fun part. We get to get out and, and check the nest um, and have a look if there's any eggs. And if there is, then um, we'll dig up the nest and, and grab them out.
What's it like? What's going through your head when you're trying to get in to get those <laughs> eggs? <laughs> Look, safety, safety is my number one concern. Um, you know, it is a dangerous job. Um, so we need to make sure that we're equipped and that everyone feels comfortable. So we'll always do a bit of a team brief before we leave the boat, make sure everyone understands their roles, make sure everyone's comfortable and confident. And just checking throughout the nest collection, everyone all good, yep, sweet, everyone's comfortable. After, you know, you've, you've done it for a while, you it's just kind of like driving to the shops and, and getting groceries. You know, it just becomes second nature, really. Do you still get that adrenaline coursing through your system? Absolutely. When you're down on the ground, covered in mud, trying to get eggs and there's crocs coming out at you, it's always a fun way to start your day. And we don't drink much coffee around here. <laughs> <laughs> On the Country Hour, you're hearing from Emily Moyes, the General Manager at Crocodilus Park, and she's about to brief her staff ahead of checking their first crocodile nest for the day. So what we'll do is we'll nose in just at the bank here. Danny, if you can just stay in the boat and if you can just keep an eye on Mum down here and let us know what she's doing. I think she probably will come out, so just focus on her. But we'll just, we'll slowly go out together and see what she does, see how she responds, if she's going to come up straight away or or not. This is a beautiful nest. She's done a great job. Nice size. You can see she's mixed everything together really well. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start digging around here. Um, and hopefully we should be able to find some eggs. They shouldn't be too deep down. Um, It is a decent nest, so as you can see, see how she's mixed everything so well together. You've got grass, you've got straw, you've got mud, some rocks. It's nice and damp, which is exactly what we want. It's nice and cool. What I'll do is just start from one side and work my way through the nest. And what I'm looking for is a pocket. Um, so we'll come across a little pocket of eggs. There we go, look at that. Oh wow. Beautiful eggs. So they're not that much bigger than like chicken eggs? Uh, not too, not too big. It does depend on the female as well, the size of the female, depending on um, what capacity she can carry and what size they are. Some beautiful eggs. So you can see here, see this one here is quite mucousy. So that's, you can tell it's nice and fresh. So. She would have laid this um, early hours of this morning. All right, so what we're gonna do now, so I'm just gonna grab a pencil, and what we do is we put a line on the top. So the way that crocodile eggs work is the embryo is attached at the top once it's laid, and we can't roll those eggs. If we roll those eggs, the embryos will die. They'll drown. So we wanna make sure that we mark these all before we put them in the esky. Where? we've got some interest from the big male he's wondering what we're doing in his territory he might come out for a visit we'll see Um, we're up pretty high so we're pretty safe up here it'll you know for a big male to get up here we've kind of got time Um, the nest that we collect next though (laughs) might be a bit of a concern but we'll see what he what mood he's in in a little bit do you know come help me with these eggs Jess of the 40, 50 eggs you're collecting here, how many do you expect to hatch successfully? Um, because we are collecting them so fresh and straight away, um, these should have a pretty high um, hatch rate because they are being removed and putting in a controlled environment. So, you know, you should see a, a 98% hatch rate from these guys. 
in the wild, it would be a lot less than that. So how many did you get in total just now? Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> I would probably say, um, I mean, that was a decent sized clutch, so probably around 60. And that's it, that one's done. So why do you do it? So here in Crocodilus Park, we collect the eggs, um, we incubate them, and then they are sold onto crocodile farms um, for raising, and they will be made into skin products and for meat products as well. So in the wild um, and in captivity as well, crocodile nests are really vulnerable, predation, flooding, heat. Um, so a very small percentage actually make it to adulthood. So, you know, we, yeah, we collect them and we sell them onto the farms and, and they get produced as any other normal farming animal. What about the demand for the croc eggs? What's that like at the moment? Oh, look, it, it's pretty high. Um, I think in, in Northern Territory, just roughly, there's maybe, you know, 10, 10 farms or so. And we've got farms over in Queensland as well. Um, obviously, it's the right, right temperature um, and climate for crocodiles. And so, like, the demand is pretty high. You know, meat industry is strong. The leather industry is strong. So the demand is, yeah, quite high. What would be a good year in terms of all the nests and all the eggs you collect? What would be a good year of eggs? Oh, off, off the top of my head, um, about 1,000, 1,500 eggs. Um, it adds up pretty quickly. Again, it really depends on the rain. If you have good rain for the year, um, you'll have more eggs. Whereas if it's a dry, hotter year, you, you can see a dramatic difference. So this year should be a good one? Yeah, this year should be a really good year for eggs. Um, it's been a strong start um, and we've still got a lot of rain and wet season to go. That was Emily Moyes, the General Manager of Crocodilus Park, speaking with me there. Let's have some music from Tom Curtin. This is Full Give It. That is Tom Curtin, full give it, it's 10 to 1. The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. The mango harvest has started earlier than expected for growers in far north Queensland thanks to a hot and humid spring, but it's been overshadowed by a crash in prices. The season here in the NT and in the Burdekin ran behind, which has led to an overlap and a glut in supply as the far north joins the competition. Matilda grower John Nardi is about halfway through his KP harvest and has started on his R2E2s, and he says the prices are the lowest he's seen in three years. Prices have come back, you know, probably $10 a box in the last week, basically. Yeah, so it's been a fairly quick move, so to speak. What's caused this crash in prices? So I think it's been generally across the board, it's been you know, a strong crop in all regions. Obviously, Darwin and Catherine experienced you know, very heavy rainfalls and that impacted fruit quality and sort of extended their harvest a bit as well. The Burdekin area is probably running a little later than normal as well. So it's sort of, they're just you know, really coming into their volumes now or about to get into their volume. So that is coming, you know, pretty much impacting on top of our season as well. So there's going to be, I think the fruit numbers, you know, volumes in the market are going to be a bit stronger than we would like to see. You know, typically with, we are normally sort of separated by a few weeks from the other regions, but there seems to be a bit of an overlap. We're still in a bit of a transition stage now because the bigger volumes are really just sort of coming into the markets now. So I guess over the next week we'll see where that settles. Which markets are most affected? 
It does depend on varieties as well. So the Archery G market is very poor this year as well, pricing-wise. But you know that's a bit of a combination of you know, low export, very difficult to get freight, or expect freight is expensive. So export numbers are certainly you know, restricted by that. Um, the higher price to land over there and prices out of the market with the air freight and everything as well. So R2E2s are there's a lot of fruit in the market at the moment, and they're probably seeing the prices on R2s are that particular variety of, are lower than normal for this time of year. So that's one of the challenges we have with the um, limitation we have on export, I suppose. How does this price compare to the last few years? I think it's probably the lowest I've seen for three or four years. Yeah, yeah. Last year was prices were pretty strong. Crop was down quite a bit across the board for most growers, and I guess the regions were a bit more separated. The overlap is adding adding to the issue this year. How long will that likely last for? Do you think? I don't think it'll go up at least until into January sometime. There'll be good strong numbers of and volumes going into the markets for Christmas. So you know. The good thing for consumers and our customers are that you know there'll be strong supply going into Christmas, and given the you know the impact on stone fruit and cherries and things like that with the wet weather down south, that's probably going to increase. We're seeing a little bit increase in demand there for mangoes. We think that's going to sort of stay strong, I suppose. Uh, but given the extra volumes that we're seeing come through, you know that's a bonus for us. But there is going to be a lot of fruit there for that Christmas period, and those strong numbers will obviously have an impact on price. Let's hope everyone will help out by eating a lot of mangoes this Christmas. Is there anything else that can be done to help ease this problem? It's a tough one and I guess you know, as a grower we need to sort of make sure that we're um, doing our math well and making sure that what we're sending to market is viable I suppose and um, not over supplying or adding more supply to the market that, that we need to I guess. And that by that I mean grades you know we you know, I'm not packing certain grades because I don't think it's going to be worthwhile. I'm putting it straight to juice and processing and things like that. So that's something that you know growers need to individually sort of work out for themselves, I guess. How disappointing is it when you are getting ready to harvest all your hard work from the previous year and you see the prices sliding? It's terrible. I mean, there's a lot of very passionate growers out there that you know, put a lot of effort into growing good quality fruit. And you know, this is a very good quality growing region. We probably do a lot more work in our trees and our fruit than some other regions. Um, and that's just the growing nature up here. But, you know, it's, yeah, very disappointing, especially when, you know, on top of the increased costs that we've had to endure over the last couple of years, it's, it's a struggle. <laughs> it really is. John Nardi is a mango grower in Matilda. He was speaking with Tanya Murphy. It is coming up four to one. You're off to the cricket very shortly if you're in Darwin. Continuing with me on the radio if you're listening elsewhere, let's get a, a check in with the weather, with the Bureau of Meteorology. Sally Cutter is with you today. Hello. Good afternoon. It is getting hotter somehow, still getting hotter. How are things looking, uh, you know, in terms of this heat wave, what's happening? Uh, it's getting hotter. We're going to see temperatures in the mid to getting into getting up over 45 by the time we get to the end of the, the weekend through the Southern Barklands, the Tanami, so basically where the sun's directly overhead. And that's probably part of the issue. The, there's little cloud there and the sun's overhead and just everything's heating up. The good news is we do have a change coming through down south 
over the weekend and so by Monday we're going to see a significant drop in those temperatures but until then it's going to be it's through the southern districts until then it's going to be quite hot. I saw some temperatures of around 46 degrees, particularly close to the, you know, sort of around Timber Creek and around the um, the NT Queensland border. Will they get a bit of relief come next week? Uh, yes, Timber Creek because we, the cloud cover will increase. The ones, the places, particularly the southeast and Barclay, they'll get more from the cool air from the ridge moving in. So there is some respite in the cards or on the cards. So, but we're going to. We've just got to get through this weekend, really, because it's yeah, it's just going to be really, really hot. Okay, and when is some rain really going to set in? Do you think, Sally? Uh, increasing chance as we go into next week over the top end. We might see the odd shower storm down the western parts of the the territory over the next couple of days, and maybe extending a little bit further east on Sunday but then sort of contracting a little bit further north but we do have another low developing over WA next week and that's just going to drag the showers and storms back down the western border but probably won't increase the temperatures that much. Okay, any rainfall on the way for Central Australia? Yeah, that's the down through the, okay, the, along the western, western border. Yeah, but yeah, not, not in yeah. the east? No, there's slight chance in the east but it's more likely to be the west. Okay, and aside from the heat and maybe not too much rainfall, what about the coastal waters? If people are hoping to risk it and get out and about this weekend, is it going to be any good? Okay, as far as the waters go, if you're not venturing far from Darwin, I just got to get the mouse in the right spot. The, we're looking at sort of 10 to 15 knots to west and northwesterly winds. If you're venturing a bit further afield or or off, going offshore, or not. So in, still in our coastal water area, but a bit f- f- sort of away from the harbour. We're looking at sort of 10 to 15 knots northwesterly on the west coast, around on the north coast in the Arafura Sea. A bit lighter up there, variable 10 today, but so reaching up to 10 to 15 knots inshore in the afternoon on Saturday and Sunday as well with the sea breezes. And then sort of a lot in the Gulf of Carpentaria, North to northwesterly winds on Sunday, 10 to 15 knots, tending north to northeastly, 15 to 20 knots during the afternoon. And we're going to see similar on Saturday as well, 10 to 15 knots, reaching up to 20 knots inshore in the afternoon. And is there anything else that we need to know before we let you go today? No, just the heat. Watch out for the storms. They may be a little bit gusty. That's probably the other thing. They're going to be few and far between, but if one gets going, there is certainly the risk of gustiness there. All right. Well, thank you very much, Sally. Hopefully we'll speak to you in a cooler week next week. That is Sally Cutter. She's a duty forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. Now in Darwin, you are heading off to the cricket at one o'clock. For everyone else, you're sticking with me if you are listening around the Territory on your analogue radio or online, uh, and then you'll head to the cricket at about half past one. So don't worry, you won't miss out on that. If you are heading off and want to catch the rest of the program, you can listen in online or go back and listen to the NT Country Hour podcast. So don't worry, you can do that as well. That's it from me. It's one o'clock. My name is Jenny Manmarulu and this is where I live and work at Warui. And I'm really proud of what we're doing with our oysters here at Warui. They are the best in the world because we've got a clean water, not polluted. 
and you're listening to the Country Hour. Hello. Yes, you are. I'm, I'm Michelle Stanley. I'll be along with you for the Country Hour today. I'm glad you can stick around for this last half hour. And it turns out there's been a bit of a change. I said before the news that if you were in Darwin, you were heading off to the cricket at one o'clock, but clearly that hasn't happened. You get to stick around with me right across the Territory until 29 past one. So you won't miss a single ball of the cricket. Don't worry, but you'll be with me until 29 past one, right across the NT, and I'm very glad to have you with me today. Now, if you're a foodie, or maybe you just like eating the food, I wonder whether you pay attention to where your produce comes from. We talk about Aussie-grown all the time, and there are plenty of Aussie-grown lines these days, of course, but imports continue to dominate some fresh produce, particularly things like garlic. Before half past one, you'll meet a couple hoping to turn that around in quite a beautiful style, actually. A lot of people don't like cutting them off because they look so good. (laughs) They don't want to use them. But I keep encouraging them to eat it because it tastes as good as it looks. Keep listening to the Country Hour for more on that before half past one. Now, if you tuned in just a few minutes ago and you missed the weather, well, you probably know what to expect anyway. There's not much relief in sight, unfortunately. Sally Cutter is the duty forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. Uh, It's getting hotter. We're going to see temperatures in the mid to getting getting up over 45 by the time we get to the end of the the weekend through the Southern Barklands, the Tanami, so basically where the sun's directly overhead. And that's probably part of the issue. There's little cloud there and the sun's overhead and just everything's heating up. The good news is we do have a change coming through down south over the weekend and so by Monday we're going to see a significant drop in those temperatures but until then it's going to be it's through the southern districts until then it's going to be quite hot. I saw some temperatures of around 46 degrees particularly close to the you know sort of around Timber Creek and around the um, the NT Queensland border will they get a bit of relief come next week? Uh, yes, Timber Creek because we, the cloud cover will increase. The ones, the places, particularly the southeast and Barclay, they'll get more from the cool air from the ridge moving in. So there is some respite in the cards or on the cards. So, but we're going to, we've just got to get through this weekend, really, because it's yeah, it's just going to be really, really hot. Okay, and when is some rain really going to set in? Do you think, Sally? Uh, increasing chance as we go into next week over the top end. We might see the odd shower storm down the western parts of the, the Territory over the next couple of days and maybe extending a little bit further east on Sunday, but then sort of contracting a little bit further north. But we do have another low developing over WA next week, and that's just going to drag the showers and storms back down the western border, but probably won't increase the temperatures that much. Okay. Any rainfall on the way for Central Australia? Yeah, that's the down through the, okay, the along the western, western border. Yeah, but yeah, not not in yeah. the east. No, there's slight chance in the east, but it's more likely to be the west. That is Sally Cutter from the Bureau of Meteorology. Heat waves kill more Australians than bushfires, cyclones, and floods combined. People most at risk are outdoor workers, babies, and the elderly. Check that they're able to stay cool. 
It's also very important to cool the body at night using water, fans and air conditioning. Health effects can sometimes occur days after the heatwave passes, so if you don't feel well, seek medical help. ABC Radio, your emergency broadcaster. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Michelle Stanley with you today. Good to have you along. It is 10 past one. Have you ever been out to a mining camp, stayed out there? It can be pretty rough and ready in some places, but things have certainly come a long way in the past few decades. And now an Australian mining company has plans to redefine the standards for fly-in, fly-out workers by offering resort-style accommodation. I wonder whether that's enough to get you in the door to work in mining. WA-based iron ore and lithium miner Mineral Resources has received approval to build a 500-person resort in the north of Western Australia, which will house FIFO workers for its new $3 billion Onslow Iron Project. The company hopes it'll improve the mental and physical safety of its workers and encourage more women and couples to live on site. Bronwyn Grieve says while physical accommodation is just one of the elements of a cultural shift, it is an important one. We want to set a new standard for FIFO accommodation with our new resort-style accommodation. This is going to be an industry first. We're looking at investing significant sums at Onslow to change the traditional dongers into 48-square-metre studio apartments with their own private alfresco and ensuite, queen-size beds with quality sheets, and a physical environment also that has many common facilities, so gym and sporting facilities, an Olympic pool, a golf simulator, etc., But it's not just about the physical environment. It's also about the wraparound support that we want to create at Onslow. And so what we're going to focus on is ensuring that we've got village activation teams that provide on-site health and wellness professionals that provide services to people so that when they aren't working, they have the support that they need as they would in a normal community. We're hoping that this strategy will encourage different kinds of people into the mining sector. We're hoping to attract more females, but we're also with our larger uh, accommodation and apartments, we're hoping to attract couples. Do you think mm. accommodation is enough to draw draw people up who, who already have lives based elsewhere? All FIFO workers have lives based elsewhere. And what we are committed to is creating an opportunity for couples to come together to site. Now, it's not just about the physical environment. It also is about finding couples the right jobs, giving them career paths that are stimulating for both partners. Uh, We think with the expansion of opportunities at Mineral Resources at the moment, we can provide those opportunities. We can provide learning and training so that people as couples can come on site. Some research in 2018 found loneliness in these um, environments was a big factor and social situations like barbecues and quiz nights actually did more to improve mental well-being than, say, a pool and a gym. What what do you make of that? Oh, look, we fully support that concept and we're certainly adopting that in our approach for village-style accommodation or resort-style accommodation. So, you know, when we talk about golf simulators and Olympic pools, it's not just about allowing people to go and use those facilities on their own. There will certainly be a lot of communal activities that are associated with those. 
Bronwyn Grieve oversees camps and culture at Mineral Resources. She was speaking with Alice Angeloni. I wonder, could resort-style accommodation become the norm at mine sites in Australia? And could it encourage you to go and work on the mines? Features like an Olympic-sized swimming pool, restaurants, bars, a golf simulator and a wellness centre. Dave Holland is a strategist who's been designing mining camps for the past 30 years. And he says it's about time mining companies raise the standards. I'd say this camp is leading edge and, and uh, good on uh, Mineral Resources for, for taking the initiative to improve the amenity for the users and to incorporate families. I think that's been quite slow coming in Australia and, and I guess that's because the wives of FIFO workers or the husbands if it's a, a female worker have their own networks and where they where they normally reside and sometimes it's a bit difficult to get away and, and live in that environment. Now what sort of briefs are you getting from resources companies about what level of luxury they want in a camp that, that you're set to design? Look, it's changed quite dramatically in the last couple of years and or even sooner than that. It's a result of um, competition for FIFO workers and they're looking to improve the amenity for uh, the users and and, uh, improve not only the accommodation but uh, surrounding uh, amenities that go with it. You know, too often the standard dongers just have a plastic chair outside the front door on the uh, concrete veranda and so in between work and uh, and eating the meal and then going to bed uh, there's not a, a nice environment but Uh, we've um, designed some camps that have got virtually the same footprint in in terms of the rooms, some a little bit bigger, um, but they've got private courtyards uh, uh, that are screened from the next rooms and and people can go out there and relax rather than sit out their front door. Now, one of the uh, amenities at this one in Onslow, Olympic-sized swimming pool, is is that out of the box or is is that becoming a, a feature of remote camps? It's not exclusive. There's, there are other camps with pools. Um, I guess it just depends on the climate and, the, and how many people get to use it. But I, I think those sorts of amenities are what uh, workers are looking for. So it remains to be seen if, uh, if it becomes the standard. Now, you mentioned there that uh, a big driver for this is the competition for workers. Uh, is, I mean, is also a driver of this uh, promotion of mental health and also promotion of safety for women at camp, it, it, are they also genuine drivers? Oh, yes. Yeah, and, the, and the government's uh, put out a lot of guidelines um, in camps talking about camp accommodation, and that really focuses around mental health and safety and the services that are provided uh, in terms of safety and health, like uh, wastewater treatment and all of those sorts of things. But um, there doesn't seem to be any guidelines on amenity. So that's been the, the missing link, and it's been left to the mining companies themselves or industry to um, prescribe those features. What were the briefs 30 years ago when you first began? Were there any briefs? Is it just get us some dongers and plonk them? Yeah, look, very much so. The accommodation was the last thing that was thought uh, thought about in a project and often it was very close to the opening or the mobilisation of the workforce. You know, we've been involved uh, in very big camps of uh, up to 500 rooms where we've had six to eight months to build the camp on a greenfield site and that's, that's getting services and underground services as well as the buildings. 
in, the, in this particular location it involves involved a wet season which uh, hindered construction as well so yeah i think that the the mining companies uh, are giving much longer lead times now and that that has better outcomes I wonder whether it changes your mind on whether you would work on the mines as well. You're welcome to get in touch today, 0487 991057. That was Dave Holland from Brighthouse Strategic Consulting. He was speaking with Andrew Collins about improvements in accommodation on mine sites. This is Brooks and Dunn. It's Red Dirt Road at 18 past one. Brooks and Dunn, Red Dirt Road. It's 21 past one. G'day, my name's Amy Snowden. I celebrate Australian agriculture using Lego and you're listening to The Country Hour. There's plenty of Aussie produce on the shelves these days, but still, did you know China grows 75% of the global garlic crop? And a lot of that winds up here. A few Australian farmers are offering a homegrown alternative to the cheaper imported bulbs, though. Paramedic Richard Crawley and his wife and teacher's aide, Sharon, they were looking for a crop to grow on their ex-dairy bean and banana farm in Queensland, and they settled on Aussie purple garlic. And as Jennifer Nichols discovered, they also braid the stems, which is a fancy but functional way to add value to their beautiful bulbs. This is Garlic Central. Central. (laughs) It's amazing inside this shed. I wish people could see it, but we can describe it. You've got ropes hanging from the ceiling with bunches of garlic hanging off it, all curing. It's a side, isn't it? I call it the garlic forest. We're slowly working our way through the forest this year. 2021 we planted. We planted in April and um, harvest in August. Family and friends help us out. I've got nephews that help plant. We plant in one day. Hello, I'm uh, Richard Cawley. I'm Sharon Cawley. We just feel wonderful that we can supply fresh Australian grown garlic to uh, replace the imports. We live at Como on the Sunshine Coast in the Noosa hinterland just outside of Kinkin. We're on 33 acres, which was an old ex-dairy bean farm and bananas. Over the last seven years, we've been having a go at growing some garlic, Aussie purple. We started just from getting a braid from a grower down at the Noosa Farmers Market. So we've slowly built up our numbers. From one braid of garlic, yep. wow. Yep. And how many garlic bulbs did you end up producing this year? This year, only 7,000. We did eight to nine the previous year. It was a good year. This year, not as well. Is that because of the horrendous amount of rain that we had at the start? We got our 300 mil there in um, late April. Was Um, that in one day? uh, In one week. We mound the garlic and it came through really well actually. So it's a combination of a bit of the rain. We were selling the larger bulbs and this year we're keeping them for replanting. And we've just trialled this year as well with uh, the overhead irrigation. We've got a large spring-fed dam. Uh, We're very lucky to be able to irrigate. I saw it on my way in. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, liquid gold. We plant in April. We usually do sugarcane mulch and we've had real trouble with weeds during winter. And we'll put on a biodegradable weed mat produced here on the Sunshine Coast, which worked a treat for us this year, cutting down our work for the weeds throughout the winter. And I'm hoping to go up to about 10,000, you know, just over a quarter acre. And how do you juggle this with your day jobs? 
But you're a paramedic and you work as a part-time teacher aide at the local school. It does take a lot of juggling, but we thoroughly enjoy to uh, come home from work, to get out on the tractor once it's germinating, to see it come through the mulch. It's such a wonderful feeling. It's lovely. I think that's the benefit of going to the markets too and actually selling to the people who are going to eat it and their response and how much they love it and appreciate talking to the grower as well. It's nice to be there. And what about the feedback when they've used it and come back to Chatir? I love the foodies. <laughs> they have great reviews. Yeah, it's just wonderful how everyone supports us, especially in the Kinkin area and surrounds and family. A lot of Christmas presents are going out of braids, which we're really happy about because they store a lot longer. And yeah, the general feedback is just how much flavour and moistness and that in the garlic, which they don't get at the shops from the you know imported stuff. And how do people react to the braiding? It must add value because it just looks so pretty. They are the most popular there, definitely. Uh, I think people like to see that hanging in the kitchen, cut a bulb off and uh, into the dinner. A lot of people don't like cutting them off because they look so good. (laughs) They don't want to use them. But I keep encouraging them to eat it because it tastes as good as it looks. We've just picked this lot down. So it's basically coming up the stalk, cleaning off the edges. We're doing groups of 10 this year. Keep them all the same weight so that we can do a general pricing. Is this a two-person job? It is. That's why our labour on it is a little bit higher in our cost. So can you describe what you're doing? I gather the first three that I've selected to fit in nicely with each other. Richard then ties the three together with a little bit of twine, trims that off. So I've got my three sections to braid, just like plaiting really. And then we just basically add to the middle and fold over from the right, add to the middle, fold over from the left, add to the middle and continue that. We have had a lot of suggestions to add flowers, I'd love to do that if I had the time. <laughs> well, you could put time in there as well. <laughs> the herb, Great that is. idea. <laughs> My girlfriend has done it and it looks fantastic. Smells. It's amazing. So now that I've done the 10 in there, I'm just continuing the plait up the stalk. So it looks and hangs well. Make sure it's straight. And then Richard ties off the end. And we put our noosa hinto and garlic label on it. Oh, how good does that look? Trim off the top and ready for the markets. Nice and fresh. So how much do you charge a kilo? Because the imported garlic is a lot cheaper than Australian garlic. Yeah, that's true. And they are big bulbs. They are very lovely to look at, but the taste is just not there. $30 a kilo we're charging, where it can be in the uh, local fruit and veg for up to, you know, $60 a kilo. So... Again, how much do you pay? We feel uh, very happy to supply affordable local produce to our local community, you know, and that's what we're we're doing it for. What's your favourite garlic-inspired recipe? Oh, I just like a garlic pasta. Just keep it simple. I think let the garlic kind of show its flavour. I love it roasted in the oven and then just popping it out of the skin. Yeah, just cut off the top, throw in some olive oil, put it in with your roast. Um, Garlic bread, we make a garlic butter, so many things. I'll even eat it raw. (laughs) Scrambled eggs with garlic's quite good too. One of our customers put me onto that one. And it's really good for you too. The health benefits are said to be very good. Well, I'd even go as far as saying it may be a superfood.
Oh, look, I don't know that I'd eat it raw, but the rest of it sounded pretty good. That was Richard and Sharon Cawley from Noosa Hinterland Garlic. They were speaking with Jennifer Nichols. That is it for the Country Hour this week. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been great to hang out. Have a safe weekend. Try and stay cool. And I'll catch you on Monday. You're off to the cricket now. It is 29 past one.